Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. I always have an elephant make a little noise at the beginning of my podcast because I love the fable of the blind man and the elephant. And basically, we're all just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. My uh, guests today are the authors of the next Rosenfeld Media book, Diana Dibel and Rebecca Evano. Welcome. So great to have you, uh, because especially because this is the point at which we get to, or you get to especially, enjoy that moment of being done and talking about the project. Yeah, thanks for having us. It is really nice to be done with the book, thanks to your help and Marta's and everybody at Rosenfeld's. Wow, we're so happy. Uh, for those of you who don't know Diana and Becca, uh, Diana is a design director at Grand Studio, and Rebecca is a visiting assistant professor at Pratt Institute and my neighbor here in Brooklyn. So, Conversations with Things, it is coming out on April 20th, already available for pre-order, which means uh, people get 15% off and free shipping if they are in the United States. And I know that this topic is what drew you together. Uh, I think it was in 2018, you two found yourselves uh, chatting in, in Slack. You didn't know each other before then, right? We did right. not. Well, what got, you, what, what got each of you into the topic in the first place that you would be so brave as to ask some, put it out there for strangers to help you with the topic? I think actually, Becca, you were the one who posted the question initially, right? Yeah, Diana is the founder of the Vui Slack channel, and I had joined it and um, had been, I think I would say three, like uh, four or five years into my career and um, was getting really interested in accessibility and feeling like people weren't talking about it enough. So I wrote in the Slack channel, like, does anybody know about how to make voice more accessible? And Diana was one of the people who responded and we started DMing and then uh, that, yeah, that was the start of our friendship and it's also the start of our book. And, and Remember that. yeah, and, and, and Diana, how did you, let, let's take, rewind it even a little further back. Why did you set up the Slack? So I actually co-founded it with uh, Alana Meyer, who's at Facebook now. And she and I were at the time working at Emmy, which is a health tech company that got later acquired. So no longer exists. Um, and we were just trying to find our way, I think, because we had kind of organically come into this VUI experience at Emmy out of sort of the ever-expanding product uh, offerings there. And so we were new to this space and just wanted to meet other people. And we went to, I think it was Speech Check, met some of the Avid folks. And this started really as a Slack for the Avid group and then kind of became its own thing. And that's how Rebecca and I found each other. And I still remember where I was standing when I talked to Rebecca that first time. I was like in the hallway at uh, the Grand Studio offices, just chatting on the phone. <laughs> totally. Well, and then here we are a couple, three years later, and you have a book out. Now, is the community of people interested in, uh, in, in I guess you would probably, the, the best general term is VUI, right? Yeah. Uh, is... VUI is meant for uh, the voice only or like voice first focused stuff. So voice user interface. If it's a chat bot, it's more conversation and then multimodal can kind of span both. So now the umbrella term is conversation design. Okay. So is, is but is that, 
group of people are they uh, i'm just wondering how far along they are as a group like is this a community at this point and if so is it a community of interest is it becoming a community of practice or has it gotten even a little further in terms of gelling around some sort of set of best practices and maybe that's where your your book is uh, the the sort of the definition at this point of those best practices I would say we're in the second wave of um, of the community forming or expanding or kind of changing. So there's a bunch of people in the field who have been designing spoken interactions based on computers since like the 80s. Um, and those folks worked, they were usually called VUI designers or IVR designers. And so they've been a community of practice for a long time and, and formed some of these early groups like Avid, like Diana was talking about. Um, but with the advent of Alexa and Siri and chatbots kind of taking over, um, <clears throat> there's kind of a new wave of conversation designers like Diana and myself who um, entered into the field kind of a bit randomly, but um, now that we're here, <laughs> we um, I, I would say there is a solid community. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of great conferences, webinars, talks, great Twitter community. So um, conversation design can look a lot of different ways at different companies, but I think things are starting to come together. Um, and evidence of that is the industry kind of coalescing around the term conversation design, mm-hmm. which I would say kind of in the last few years gelled. Well, along those lines, so the, the community's gelling, the, the framing is gelling around conversation design. Um, one of the things that we often see in a new area in our field is an interesting relationship to academia. Uh, for, you know, a first wave, for example, might come out of academia and then become, by the time the second wave arrives of, of development in a topic, it's more practice-oriented. That's when the practitioners pick up what theory has been coming out of academia, and they put it to work. Another model uh, is um, starting with practice, and then suddenly um, after uh, that initial wave of definition and scoping, uh, we start to bring in some of the the science that has come from academia. So for example, maybe this is true for your book, you spend some time on linguistics, obviously. Um, is that more true of the, the work now than it was a few years ago when people were still trying to kind of wrap their, their minds around the framing part? I think I'm so curious to hear what Rebecca thinks of this, but um, I think the way that I usually think about this is that it's not that it was not based in science before or that there wasn't um, any sort of academic learning to ground it in because that's actually where a lot of this stems from is the work that was done like in the 50s in academia that then birthed all of this and that it sort of has gone through some phases and I would say where we're at right now feels like we've been you know the advent of these smart speaker devices of your Google Homes, Alexas, et cetera, Siri, um, have really kind of created this land rush Mm -hmm. that has happened. And so like everybody's just doing, and there isn't a lot of, but why behind it? So it's not that that hasn't existed or there isn't research for that. It's just, it's been so fast moving that now we're circling back around to that. So now we're ready for the why in a way that we might not have been a few years back. 
Yeah. And I've, I've made the crack before of like, people seem to forget that linguistics exists. Um, and I'm, I'm not a linguist. I've done my own reading and learning, but yeah, there's a lot that like the humanities know about like the nature of truth and the nature of transparency and how linguistics work and how performance and communication work. And all of this is really well studied. Um, but a, a lot of people who get into conversational interface work are really technical focused and they sort of, I've seen people approach it like, oh, we, this has never been done before, people talking. And it's like, no, people talking has been done before. There's a, a lot that's already established. Um, but I do think there is um, some really great research happening in academia about implications, um, about human behavior and how it does and does not change interacting with technology. Um, and we quote um, research from Amanda uh, Amanda Curry and Verena Reiser, who studied basically like um, different ways to mitigate sexual harassment when people are sexually harassing chatbots. So there are there there's a really cool rise of people studying that kind of thing, and I think um, people in the practice field are really hungry to learn about that research. That's interesting. So I mean, that's a great example that um, I, maybe people who are getting into this space of conversation design think it's really, uh, so much of it is about the personality of the, the bot. And maybe what we're really finding is we just learned so much about the personality of us, of humans and how we have conversations. We actually think about our ourselves maybe in new ways as, as conversationalists. Do, do you find that um, it's as much, maybe even more about how we understand ourselves as conversationalists as much as it's about designing the bots themselves. A hundred percent. I, like I said, I came into this like from a, a health tech company. So I've been working in um, behavior design content work prior to this. And so much of that just easily translated over because you're sort of understanding like how people think and trying to anticipate what their behaviors might be. Um, which to do that, you definitely have to look inwards as well as looking outwards at the research. Um, there's another, not to plug all the Rosenfeld books, but there's another Rosenfeld book, uh, Engaged, that talks about this a lot. And I find mm -hmm. that to be so useful in conversation design to be able to break down what people's kind of standard behaviors are to try and help with that anticipation. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the bots first though, in terms of personality design. I know that's something that you've given a lot of thought about uh, in this book. And um, what's, your, what's, the, what's your line on, should a bot have a personality and what kind, how does it work in terms of representing an organization? How does personality, personality work as, you know, in terms of bot as product? What kind of personality should be put forward to uh, the public? It's like a really tough one. It's a big one. It's a big, it's a whole chapter in our book yep. that ends <clears throat> with a debate between Diana and myself about the role of brand in personality. Um, I think basically in the field, we observed a lot of people misunderstanding why or not thinking about why we make a personality in the first place. Um, the standard line is, you know, people perceive personality, whether whether you plan it or not, so you better plan it. 
Um, and then it becomes a question of, well, how do you plan a good one? And a lot of people seem to forget, like the personality is meant to serve a function. It's not, it's not for fun. It has to do a lot of work in terms of building trust. So the book has a framework about how to do that. And then um, we also talk about some of the more complex stuff like race and gender. And I know, Diana, I mean, we've probably spent the most time talking about this. I mean, this is the part I think that everybody, and we we've talked about this before, that everybody gets excited about. Like when you're going in to work on any kind of bot work, nobody really wants to work on QA. Nobody wants to work on training data. Like this is just not the sexy part of it. The fun part is sitting down and being like, oh, we're going to create like, and I think there's been this, um, this myth of particularly, you know, we hear a lot about like the Pixar people that moved to Capital One and a lot of the people from, um, myself included, I guess, came, came from entertainment and moved into this space. And so there's this kind of element of fiction writing that gets brought in that everybody wants to be part of that creative development and write this awesome backstory of how your bot used to be like a, an MMA fighter and is now like a professional skateboarder. Like, but why, what does that have to do with anything? And I think that's what we find when Rebecca's kind of referencing this um, framework and this work to do around it, it's less about the fun creative part, not to squash everybody's bubbles, but um, it's more about serving that purpose of why does this bot exist and what is it serving for the user? And then sort of backpedaling from there to figure out what does it, what are its behaviors that need to happen in order to do that service? Well, you squashed the, the bubble for me just a little bit there because the first person <laughs> I met who's working in this area is my friend Amy Marquez over at Amazon who leads uh, the, the uh, personality team, the Alexa personality team. And, and she tells me that basically her team's job is to write jokes and, uh, you know, making sure that the jokes aren't off color and that they're contextual and so forth. And it actually, it's a very, really gnarly challenge. You know, that's a, that's a, I mean, humor is so hard to do, um, for most of us, <laughs> much less totally. for bots. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, and, and, and we talk in the book a little bit about, um, the role of culture in all this and humor is very cultural, um, and subcultural, like what's funny to me, uh, an elder millennial and what's, you know, humorous to Gen Z or, mm -hmm. There's a Venn diagram there and not very much overlap between the circles, probably. Yeah. And then there's my sense of humor, which is even less, which is a problem. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, uh, interesting uh, array of challenges here. And um, I mean, one of the things I think you do in the book, maybe you want to develop this a little bit more is this is overwhelming. There's just so much. And you had to make choices for your book. Your book is not a thousand pages. Uh, thank goodness. Nobody should be writing a, a book that long. It's, it's a 320 page book. That's very manageable. How did you draw the boundaries around what you were going to cover and what you're going to leave out? And how do you put it all together? What, if I'm picking up the book, what's the framework that helps me understand what's here and how to use it? That is uh... Yeah, I was gonna say that my first answer to that is the the way we trimmed it down was our editor Marta slapping our hands and saying, "You can't have this is too much." She's good at that. <laughs> um, 
But I think, so the way that we thought about this was just sort of the process overall of what is the process and the human-centered process to design conversations. And it starts kind of at the, the scoping piece of it and the background information that you need to have, and then kind of moves through the steps that you would take to get to a successful uh, bot release with, of course, the ethical and um, cultural pieces kind of folded in. We have a chapter on that, but everything is sort of folded in as you go along because there's never, you can't really tack it on at the end as an afterthought and hope that it's going to go well. Yeah. And I think a big challenge, Diana and I have joked that I need a t-shirt that says, I'm just going to restructure this chapter because um, we restructured so many times, the whole book, the table of contents, um, and it's because the way that you do conversation design is not linear, but a book is linear. And the way that you do it in practice and the way that you learn about it are sort of different. And so um, finding the, the balance of that was a challenge. And I know at one point we had a pretty extensive um, chapter covering all the ethical issues. And midway through, we decided to break that up and intersperse it mm -hmm. in the chapters. And, and part of the reason why we made that decision was because um, we didn't want to present ethical and inclusive considerations as an, a literal afterthought as the final chapter. Um, they're very infused in the daily work and we wanted to show that. So um, that felt like a big breakthrough when we figured out how to kind of infuse that throughout the book. Ethics as attribute. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's analogous to in, in, uh, innovation. Yeah, if you have a separate innovation group, good luck actually innovating as an organization. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to get back to ethics after this break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com slash communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review with my guests today, authors Diana Dibel and Rebecca Evanhoe, 
authors of Conversations with Things, UX Design for Chat and Voice, Rosenfeld Media's very next book coming out on April 20th, currently available for pre-order at 15% off and free shipping if you're in the U.S. Okay, so we were just touching on ethics uh, before the break. Now, I put a question out on the Rosenfeld Media Slack, which everyone is listening is welcome to join. Just send me an email, info at rosenfeldmedia.com, and we'll add you. So a couple of the questions um, hit on ethics, and I wanted to uh, actually throw those two questions at you. Uh, first question is from Andre Ursay. And I, Andre, I hope I, I pronounced your last name properly, U-R-S-E. Andre asks, privacy is a very hot topic and we don't want to be listened to or recorded without our permission by virtual assistants. And uh, Andre cites a, a recent example from Spotify where uh, the concern was that um, Spotify could determine your emotional state from your speech and, and uh, music choices. So how do we know when ethical design stops and unethical design starts and how can we avoid such things? First of all, that Spotify article is wild. I read through it and it's, it's actually more about, they were putting in a patent to listen into the background and be able to tell how you're feeling, not just based on your linguistic patterns and the sort of timbre and patterns of your voice, but also what's going on in the background. So if they can hear birds chirping and things like that, which is like a lot of power to give anyone. Mm -hmm. And immediately what it made me think of was they're basically working on a hypothesis, right? That if they can anticipate what you want to hear, that you're going to continue to listen. You're going to continue to either like pay your subscription to listen, or you're going to stay on and listen to all the ads that they're going to make revenue from. And that just made me think of the YouTube algorithms that they found have been problematic and linked to radicalizing mm -hmm. people. And I just thought like, man, there is so much like just from a pure like, oh, I'm feeling sad and maybe I have um, depression issues and I'm like listening to sad music and it can tell that I'm sad by my voice. Does it continue to play sad music because that's what I want? Is that what's good for me? Why, who's deciding and what parameters are they deciding? What help are they going to give me if I need, like, it just feels like a really tight rope kind of rabbit hole to just throw somebody into. And I think like to kind of get to Andre's question about like, how can you tell what's ethical and unethical? It is, it's deeply personal to the designer, to the design team and to the company, but there is there has to be some sort of standard. And in this case, it feels like there's not anybody thinking about how could this go wrong? Mm -hmm. And like continually asking that question of like, what harm could I be causing? feels like a really easy starting place. Yeah, and we have so many examples at this point. Maybe they're not based on on chat or, or voice assistant voice assistants, but they're, they're, it seems like it's the, the same set of ethical concerns. I mean, Sarah Wachter-Betcher certainly covered a lot of this in, in Technically Wrong and um, you know, uh, we, we just see this continually happening. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you also have to have, like we just saw with Google and their AI sort of blow up that just happened. Um, if you don't have a company culture to back up the decision making or the, what's getting surfaced mm -hmm. from your design team or your researchers, then the decision making is still going to wind up 
potentially being unethical because there's not a structure in place to support the work that's being done. So it's a bigger issue here. Well, let, let's take another ethics-related question. This one from Lauren Hansen. She asks, I'm curious about uh, your take on the ethics of things with voices as targets of abuse as opposed to sources of abuse. Uh, things with voices are being designed to become more and more human-like in how they speak, but users still seem to feel comfortable swearing at and insulting virtual assistants and chatbots in a way that they wouldn't speak to a human being. From a human-centered design perspective, is this dynamic problematic if it isn't hurting anyone? This is such an interesting question, and I apologize if you can hear a lawnmower going on outside my door. But um, so I think there's a, a couple of, of things. I do firmly feel that... Um, yeah, but these are things like Alexa is not a person. It's a, it's zeros and ones at the core of it. Um, so it's really just a matter of studying, like, what is the effect on people, right? Like, I don't think it's known whether, um, like, is there some social good over having a virtual assistant that you get to yell at? Potentially, you know, like, I certainly think there's potential for virtual things to help coach us on certain behaviors or communication tactics. Um, but one area where it is pretty well understood to be harmful is um, people sexually harassing bots. And that that is something that, uh, that does happen that um, I think is widely understood to be totally inappropriate. Um, and, and I think there's a pretty hard line on that kind of behavior. Do you, do you see um, some opportunity to do sentiment analysis, for example, um, you know, you, um, you know, you, 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 you can maybe get feedback from a, a human user that they're frustrated and explore the source of the frustration. Maybe the bot isn't, has a design problem. It's not processing voice inputs properly. And so people feel like they have to continually repeat themselves. Like, I know I do that. And I start finding that I'm talking to a voice system in kind of clipped, annoyed tones, or I have to say, no, yes, or whatever. <laughs> I get really frustrated. Might that be a useful thing to explore? It's not abusive necessarily, but it's, it's pissy. <laughs> Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's interesting potential for us to get, to get feedback um, on our own, on our own behaviors. Um, I do think that people get clippy with, uh, with devices like Alexa more than they would. Um, but these devices are also potentially notoriously frustrating as well. And um, uh, just a, a note to Lauren, who uh, asked the original question, uh, apologies if we misgendered you, oh, I should say, if I misgendered you, um, uh, well, you know, you really are covering uh, the issues of ethics and inclusion throughout the book. What, what else do you think our listeners should know about your take on, on those topics? Um, I think we both have a lot of really, <laughs> I'm just like taking a breath here. We have a lot of strong thoughts on that, but I also mm -hmm. think there's just, um, 
Rebecca had mentioned some research at the beginning uh, from Verena Reiser and uh, Amanda Circus Curry. And there's just so much out here for both research and for work to be done that I think it is a really ripe area for us to learn more about like as a community. Um, there isn't really like a standard. I know there are a couple people in a couple of groups have been looking to put together ethics kind of guidelines overall for the community and nothing has sort of settled in as the thing yet. But um, I think there's definitely some space there for people that are interested and well-versed in that to have a role and kind of set some parameters for the, the community. Well, and I'm really glad that you two are, are helping lead that discussion. Um, we have so far to go and this technology is going to be, you know, only, well, booming would be probably a, a fair estimate of the impact in the next couple of years and, and then some. Uh, so we're really grateful to you uh, for writing your book. And I'm very excited to see uh, the reactions to it. Conversations with things UX designed for chat and voice, as I mentioned earlier, out on April 20th, 2021, available for pre-order today uh, at 15% off and free shipping within the U.S. from rosenfeldmedia.com. Before we wrap up in the tradition of the Rosenfeld Review, we always like to um, give our guests an opportunity to shine a little sunlight on someone or something that our listeners should know more about. Do you have anything for us? Yeah, um, I would love to shout out Amber Nicole Hart, who we interviewed for the book. She has a talk called Why Does Siri Sound White? That is, speaking of ethics and inclusivity, um, really, really good. And I recommend everybody listen to that. Um, as well as our forward writer, Kat Velos, who's an incredible UX designer, as well as um, just really in terms of conversation overall, she's been doing a lot of work in that space of how to communicate better with your coworkers, with your friends, and has a book called We Should Get Together, which is also very useful, very well-written. Um, sorry, Becca, anything from you? Yeah, one more thing. Um, there's a fantastic book called Design Justice by Sasha Costanza Shock. And um, related to that book and that sort of group of people, there's also an organization called the Design Justice Network that I like very recently joined. They have an amazing set of principles that you can sign online and you can become a member. Um, so if you are interested in inclusive design, in a design that's not oppressive, in truly human-centered design, um, and reinventing the way that design and the tech industry treats people, definitely go to look up the Design Justice Network. Thanks for those tips. Uh, and thank you for the conversation. Haha. <laughs> Naturally, I have to throw that in. Rebecca Evanhoe of Pratt Institute, Diana Dybel of Grand Studio, authors of Conversations with Things, UX Design for Chat and Voice. Uh, great to talk with you today. Thanks for joining me on the Rosenfeld Review. Thanks, Thanks Lou. for having us. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. <laughs>